Welcome to episode 50 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is co-host Eric Dahl. Hey, John. Great to be here today. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. We're going to touch on one of my favorite new technology areas, uh, the Internet of Things. And uh, another reason to be excited about this episode is The Digital Life is 50 episodes old as of uh, today. Yeah, that's a great achievement. I know you guys had, um, I don't know what, almost 35, 40 episodes in uh, before I got involved. Uh, But it's been fun to be part of it uh, for the last several episodes. Yeah, I think... You know, when when Dirk and I started off doing this in in 2010, uh, we realized that that there was you know space for a uh, a podcast that explored digital technology. There there aren't too many. There there are quite a few around uh, design generally, but I think you know we identified uh, a need and and it's you know improved over the years, and we're really excited to announced that we've got a new website, which we're uh, rolling out. Uh, Eric, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about uh, what we're doing with the new site? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that I'm excited about, most excited about um, on the new website is that we've started providing transcripts for the the main audio content. So you can go and listen to the the show um, like you normally would, but you can also go and scan the, the different sections um, and read them you know, at your leisure or if there was something that you remembered. And it's, it's always difficult to sort of scan audio um, to find a particular quote or a reference or something. So you can easily go to the, the website now, um, look at the transcripts, pull those up and uh, read through it or find a, a specific thing that you're interested in. So we're working backwards with the transcripts so, and, and also working forwards uh, in terms of all the new uh, releases are going to have transcripts with them. And as we have time, we're going to go back through all of the episodes and, and provide transcripts. Uh, additionally, I think some of the very earliest episodes, we had some, some great interviews and, uh, we might, uh, be selectively, uh, re-releasing some of those interviews with transcripts as well. So, so in so in fifty episodes, uh, some some of the great guests that you know that I enjoyed uh, either interviewing or uh, uh, you know listening to the interviews. We we had uh, Luke W. We had Dave Gray, who who did uh, his most recent book, The Connected Company. Uh, Kelly Goto, uh, Soren Johnson, who uh, was the game designer for Dragon Age Legends, among other games, and so many others. It's it's fun for us to be going back through the archives because we it it's uh, you know I'm really appreciative of all of the people who took some time out of their day to come and talk with us over the past fifty episodes and we're really looking forward to the next fifty. Yeah, that's right. It really is a, a wealth of information that's there, and it's like you said, it's fun to go back through those and you know, we, we can announce on upcoming shows as we release different episodes uh, so people can, can go back and find those targeted transcripts. Yeah, that's right. So today, as I mentioned, you know, the topic is the Internet of Things, and let's get the show rolling uh, with Dirk Niemeyer and The Human Factor.
and this is The Human Factor. This week we're going to talk about the Internet of Things, and it's one of the most exciting aspects of technology, certainly Internet technology today. And, you know, I first got interested in the Internet of Things back in 2004. I had a presentation I was going to make at Baydux, the San Francisco Bay Area's user experience design group. And I wanted it to be on what I was calling at the time the future of digital product design. And in doing the research for that talk, it really became clear to me that we were heading for this Internet of Things. And that was really exciting to realize and then think about and watch unfold over time. And now, incredibly, it's almost 10 years later. It doesn't, it doesn't feel that long. And it has certainly become a reality. The phrase, the Internet of Things, is pretty pervasive. And, you know, we have this whole episode of the digital life on it uh, because of that, that popularity and sort of mainstream appeal. Now, despite that, the Internet of Things is certainly still immature. So one of the devices that I use and like quite a bit, or at least liked quite a bit, is my Jawbone Up. Most of you, when you hear Jawbone Up, probably think of a couple years ago when they launched their first product. It had all kinds of problems, was an immediate failure, and I think was completely pulled from the market. Um, I actually have one that's a new one. They, uh, late, mid to late last year, 2012, they re-released the Jawbone Up, fixing some of those problems, and I picked one up. I wanted to give it a try, particularly because it had a, a great feature that not only does it track your sleep, which other devices do, but you can set an alarm and it will only wake you up when your sleep rhythm is at the healthiest, optimal point to be awakened, which I thought was really cool. So I got my jawbone up. I really liked it. And I I went to great pains to make sure I was always capturing data on it. So I was very careful when I knew I would be sitting for a long time to charge it up. And I was very religious about plugging in and putting my data in. Uh, and was a real proponent of it. I got my wife on it, I got my son on it, and really was, you know, a brand passionate uh, for for the Jawbone Up. Unfortunately, what happened was the device, um, it, it stopped working, it had some problem, and I emailed their customer support. It took them two days to respond, and by the time they responded, then they said, well, try these things which I tried superficially, it seemed to be better. But then within, you know, 12 hours, it was off again. It took them another two days to respond to that. And when they finally did respond, they basically dropped the ball, they ignored, they ignored it. Meaning that they didn't even respond to that particular question, they responded to a more superficial question, I also asked, but ignored the fact that I was saying, hey, you know, my device is broken, it's not working. It's not collecting data anymore. And now it's over three weeks later, I still haven't gotten a replacement. And uh, forgetting the customer fail aspect of that, the customer service fail, the the bigger issue is the fact that I really came to rely, rely is probably too strong of a word, but I, I committed myself to integrating the Jawbone up into my life and being a tool that augments the way I live. And then it, it stopped working. And instead of stop working and have a have a replacement, like if you have an iPhone or really any kind of phone these days, if your phone craps out on you in the morning, by the afternoon you go in, you've got a new phone. It's all taken care of. 
Here, because of the nature of it being a device that's not ubiquitous, that you can't just buy anywhere, that has uncertain warranty handling and other issues, my data was just gone for a period of time. And an interesting thing happened where I, I stopped, it was even more than I stopped caring about it, I, I, I didn't want it anymore. So I put all this time into getting this great data set over a period of months, I don't know, three to six months before it broke, I think. And when it finally, you know, when it finally broke then, each day that passed, I, I just wanted less and less to do with it. Because what was interesting to me was the data story that was being told, was that I had collected all of this data, and I could see patterns over time, I could see how things changed. But now days were passing, and eventually weeks were passing, and I wasn't able to collect that data anymore. And it's just a fatal flaw of the device. At this point, I would never buy another Jawbone up. I would try and get an app on my iPhone because I know that the iPhone, at least if that breaks down, I'll have a new one almost immediately. The data outage is pretty limited. So not only did Jawbone Up lose my business and my endorsement as a very passionate consumer of theirs, but it really pointed out for me the vulnerability of the Internet of Things, the notion that we have all of these devices that are doing cool things that are out there and scattered around that we rely on uh, or find as interesting parts of our lives. And if they fail, there's a big gap there. Uh, it's, it's a big gap that's not easily and quickly filled. It's not consistent with the expectations we would have of integrating something into our life and to some degree relying, at it, uh, relying on it as a component of our lifestyle. And what it makes me think of is the evolution of technology in other ways. And even though this goes back, you know, many thousands of years in terms of looking at, at technological progress and trends, I mean, just looking at the history of internet-based technologies, the pattern is you start with this wild west of a lot of disjointed things, and it then synthesizes into fewer established foundational things. So for example, the early internet was total wild west, you know, people just connecting essentially on a phone and a terminal, connecting into a text interface. Over time, that was consolidated into platforms, into companies like Prodigy, CompuServe, and eventually AOL, which, which kind of killed the category, that took this situation where there were all of these kind of janky, disconnected, ad hoc things, and made them into larger platforms that people could use and leverage in large and meaningful ways. Now, those had their limitations as well, and so those walled gardens came out of favor, and we went back to a wild west of, I'm going to say, relatively good web pages and websites, and there were lots of them, lots and lots of them, and there weren't any clear winners, there weren't any clear leaders, whether it be search engines or photo, um, photo processing sites, or any of, of the main shopping, for example, any of the main sort of use cases for doing things online, they were highly protracted. And now today, it has really congealed into a relatively number limited number of platforms. Companies like Amazon, Apple, Google control huge market share. And the number of, of small companies doing things, they might be trying to come up and break in, but they're trying to break into relatively established, broad-based platform players. And the Internet of Things is going to have to follow that same pattern. Right now, we're in the Wild West. The reason that the Jawbone Up, despite being cool and interesting, ultimately is a failure for me, 
is that it doesn't have that platform protection. It's not integrated into a larger thing that makes it a safe, reliable, dependable user experience, that makes it something that I can really integrate into my life and count on and, and have matter. The missing piece is the platform. And it's something that isn't being talked about. I'm not even seeing at the bleeding edges good examples of of prototypes or things trying to solve that problem, but it's where we're going to have to head next. And we're going to need pioneers. You know, we're going to need people like, um, a good example would be my friend Leander, uh, Leandro Agro started a company in Italy called WideTag back in 2007, 2008. That's back at the beginning of the internet of things when that phrase existed, but people were using the word spime more than they were using the internet of things to describe what this nascent space would be. They're going to have to be pioneers like that who are getting things started, who are doing business and trying to make things happen even before it's ready because right now it's not ready. Like these different companies, these different products are so diffuse and so split and spread that pulling them into a platform and having them function in a truly, uh, really effectively working bigger life cycle, it's, it's still years away, but it's the next move that needs to happen. So as we deal with the internet of things, as we make our cool little uh, things in our Arduino and enjoy products like the Jawbone Up, they all are, are hobbled in different ways. They're just sort of experiments. They're cool. They're almost more novel than anything at the end of the day because their lim- limitations are so clear and so, so near where we need to head is to the platform and to pulling these things together into into bigger bigger solutions and you know i think the companies that succeed at that today it's it's probably unclear if i had to pick a favorite i'd actually pick samsung because samsung is doing disruptive things across all kinds of technologies and industries google would also be a good candidate uh, but it's going to be a company on that level that is pulling together a, a family, a collection of Internet of Things into a whole life cycle of experience where you don't have the kind of failings that I have with the Jawbone Up or that are obvious in the little uh, very cool homebrewed kit type things that people are having a great time working on these days. So yeah, the Internet of Things, it's it's wonderful. I'm I'm excited and intrigued by it, but where the really interesting things need to happen, where it's going to go from being a novelty to be something that's really revolutionary is when the platforms come together. And what those look like and, and the companies that are behind them is, is uncertain, but seeing that transpire and then really particularly benefiting from the fruits of those successes is going to be really thrilling. So that's all for me this week, and I'll see you next time. Hey everybody, welcome to Five Questions. Uh, today I have John Follett from Invo Boston joining us as well as Scott Sullivan from Invo Columbus. Welcome guys. Glad to be here. Hey. So today we want to talk about uh, sort of a concept or sort of area um, some people are calling uh, meta products or internet of things or ubiquitous computing or pervasive computing. Um, and we sort of want to have a discussion around this with, uh, with Scott and John. Um, so I think we'll just kick it off straight away uh, and get into it. And I want to get both of your opinions on um, how do you think about this or how do you define it in your own mind? 
I mean, this doesn't have to be sort of a decisive definition of the, the Internet of Things or, or this sort of area, but, but how are you guys thinking about it right now? Scott, why don't we start with you? All right. Well, uh, what's really interesting about this whole concept to me is just the, uh, I guess, the bytes and atoms of the whole thing. It's combining a bytes and atoms. So atoms being uh, physical things uh, that exist in our lives that aren't on a screen. And then atoms being, or no, bytes being then uh, data associated with that and data that is collected from those things. Uh, I, I feel like that the the knowledge that I get from these meta products that I interact with every day, whether I see it or not, is is the most interesting part of them. I have this I now have this this data shadow that kind of follows me around and I can I can reference it and I can see it and I can interact with it. And that's something that I never really had up until maybe a year ago. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by data shadow? Well, it's I like I like the metaphor data shadow a lot because it's uh, a shadow is something that's cast by a physical object and uh, it's it's data that's directly associated with these kind of physical objects or physical processes that happen in our real life. For example, I, I'm wear I wear a Fitbit everywhere and I know exactly how many steps I've taken and I know exactly how many or I know approximately how many steps it takes me to walk to work every day and uh, and that kind of information and that 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 data is something that I, I didn't have otherwise. That's, that's really interesting, Scott. Um, I, I think for me, Eric, what, um, uh, what the internet of things and, and meta products, how that that's defined for me is within the, the realm of the technology that makes it possible. So we've got these, these, uh, uh, low power sensors, which have become extremely inexpensive uh, to acquire, and uh, those are those are what we're using the, the data gathering for, um, or rather, using for the data gathering in in something like the Fitbit. Um, and then we have these these actuators, which allow you to turn things on and off. Like you can uh, you can switch off and on pretty much anything remotely, from from lights to your HVAC system to video cameras. And then you've also got um, RFID tags uh, for tracking things, for instance, like perhaps tracking Scott um, when he's coming to work. Uh, and then all of this is just generating massive volumes of data. And, you know, as a software firm, Involution is, you know, getting involved in, you know, everything from visualizing that data to analyzing it to providing, you know, context for uh, the people who are going to be taking action on it. Um, on the back end of that, you've got all the data routing, you've got your capture, storage, your management. So all of these things have come together in such a way that it makes it possible for, uh, you know, as Scott so uh, eloquently put it, you know, allow the physical and the digital to sort of come together uh, uh, in, in these meta products. Great. So I think, you know, what I hear both of you saying is this idea of how are we making this data that we have that's already present um, but maybe not visible. How do we make that stuff visible? Um, or it's this idea of extending capabilities to physical products, right? How do we enable through sensors or actuators or, or other devices as these are getting cheaper? How do we embed sort of smarts into physical devices so that that offer up new capabilities, um, whether it's uh, interaction capabilities or if it's um, data collection type capabilities to to physical products? Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of uh, of looking at it. 
Um, so before we get into this a little deeper, I, I want to try to get this as concrete as possible um, for our listeners. Are there some examples uh, of things that are already sort of out in the world um, that people might be aware of uh, to s- try to get their heads around um, what we're talking about today? Sure, I'll I'll uh, I'll dive in on that. So so one of the uh, one of the products that I actually find very interesting is. Uh, uh, produced by Verizon, uh, the, their fiber optic network, uh, Fios. And uh, one of the things that they're offering uh, the users who, who have uh, this you know, huge bandwidth capability to their homes is this, um, we'll, we'll call it uh, home monitoring, right? So this can range from everything from turning on different lights in your house to you know, running your... Uh, 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 security cameras to perhaps unlocking the door for the teenager who forgot their key. Uh, basically, the home automation uh, that can be part of of uh, such a system. You know, and if, if you start looking at that, you can see how that could that could impact your life in a positive way around energy usage, around things like uh, system security, uh, and really make uh, you know your home. Uh, the infrastructure accessible sort of uh, when you're not there. So that's a real uh, concrete product uh, that's related to, you know, uh, the Internet of Things that's that's online now. You can get it. Um, people use it maybe if they have an older relative they want to check in on but can't be there physically. Um, there's all sorts of potential for uh, positive impact uh, in a product like that. Yeah, continuing along with the home automation thing, I think I think one of the the more popular examples is the Nest. The Nest is is essentially it's a thermostat that is you can control it from your iPhone from anywhere, uh, and that makes it, it it's internet enabled. But it also does another thing. It, it it takes all of your data that you produce in terms of when you turn it up, when you turn it down. You say when you're home. Uh, you say when you're away. It can also actually detect if you're home. It has a, a motion or a proximity sensor on it, so it can say, oh well, I see that you're home. You're a physical person is walking in front of me. I can see that, and I think that's where the the kind of invisible interface comes in, and, and I think a lot of people have a hard time kind of grasping what that would be. It's that um, you know after so so uh, after a certain amount of time, my my Nest knows my exact patterns, and it can make calculations and and have my house at a temperature that I like without me doing anything at all. I, I walk in, and it knows that yeah, I'm probably going to be there at that time. So it gets it to the temperature that I would have set it at, and it knows when I'm not there. So it can uh, it can lower the temperature, save on heating costs and things like that, and can, pre- can prepare everything. And it, so it's not just that it's being uh, tracked or I can that I can control it over the internet necessarily. It's more that that it's it's using all of the data that I've ever given it to give me something back that I no longer have to worry about. I don't think about it anymore. It's not it's not an active part of my life. It's very very passive system at this point. So the next question I'm interested to get your opinions on um, is around the idea of you know why do designers, whether they're interface designers or interaction designers, um, why do designers need to be thinking about this? Uh, and really, what are the opportunities uh, in this kind of off-screen um, space? So I think as as designers in you know the 21st century, we're really faced with uh, a paradigm shift in, in, in what we do 
you know, every three to four years, I think you can really expect that, uh, you know, we, we all, uh, or, or at least the designers from my generation started right as the internet was, was coming to the fore. Um, mobile wasn't a blip on anybody's radar. And then all of a sudden, uh, the internet explodes, um, implodes, and then explodes again. And then you've got you know your mobile computing uh, as that as that next shift, along with all the tablet computing, and now we're looking forward to uh, ubiquitous computing or uh, the Internet of Things or meta products. We're looking uh, to going beyond the screen, and uh, we're talking about gestural interactions. We're talking about interacting with our environment, um, and I think this is the next great shift for interaction design. Um, and of course, you know, there's plenty of uh, time periods um, uh, that we could outline in, you know, the computing history that came before the Internet. Um, and I think looking forward, there's going to be many shifts that happen after this. But I think part of being a designer these days means uh, being, having an appetite for this level of, let's, let's call it um, professional chaos, right? So the need to be always learning, to, the need to be uh, always looking forward at the technology that's uh, being made available. And in some respects, also being ready for these paradigm shifts, um, uh, the space between them to get shorter and shorter. So I just uh, sort of arbitrarily put the three to four years uh, as, as you know, my expectation. But my guess is that these are going to start coming a lot faster uh, than we think. Um, and there are all sorts of emerging technologies we can talk about that need de design desperately. And that's really not in the purview of what we're doing here. Uh, but the idea that you must be ready to change and, and apply your design skills to a new set of technologies that, uh, that's coming down the road. In, in terms of specific opportunities, it, it's it you know we work with what we have. We we don't design. I don't you know we don't design for screens. We don't design for uh, you know for for phones or anything. We design for people. And and as these products are continually entering people's lives and are becoming more and more pervasive, there's more and more of a need for us to to kind of craft those things and make them better for people to use. And it's extremely fun, by the way, you know, getting off of the screen, doing things that, you know, you that I basically we just couldn't do a couple of years ago. And it's 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 really exciting. Yeah, I, I think both of you guys are onto something. And in terms of, you know, we talked to to Haig and Dave a couple episodes back um, about design education um, and really the idea of how do we train uh, students, uh, design students, to think beyond just the two dimensional screen and think about interaction design um, as some, something much larger than the the internet or something larger than even screen design. Um, but how do how do people engage with other people or how do people engage with information? Um, and so I think this is just an extension of that, and designers should be thinking beyond just screen design and really thinking about how do we engage the world um, in, in deeper ways, right? Um, so, Scott, something you said I think gets us into the, the next question, which is, um, so, so what, right? If people are, if designers are interested in getting involved with this, um, I've heard from a lot of people that I've talked to, designers saying, yeah, that's really interesting, but I, I don't know where to get started. Um, so what are some of the tools of the trade or, or where should someone look to, to get started um, working with meta products or the Internet of Things? Yeah, I, I, I think that 
the whole getting started part as a designer is the, is the hardest in this specific realm because it's extremely intimidating. Up until this point, everything that we've seen that has come out of this has been built has been like highly engineered, extremely like well-crafted, well-thought-out things that, you know, that every you know, everything I interact with has had, you know, a team of brilliant engineers working on it. So it's it gets extremely hard to be like, oh, well, I could do something like that, but uh in terms of tools, uh, I think the de facto standard here is the Arduino. And what makes the Arduino so interesting is that it was not made for engineers. It was actually literally conceived entirely for designers to do exactly what we're talking about right now. There's, and it's not just, and it's not just that it's easy. There's, uh, there's a kind of, there's a path to learning these things that's already been paved that is specifically designed for designers to, to, to work with how designers' minds may work, and which is not entirely, but in a lot of ways in a visual capacity and getting a lots of uh, great feedback from things that you do. So you start really small. And, you know, as soon as you get an Arduino, you know, it'll take about 10 minutes and you're already kind of looking at code, you're changing code around and seeing what it does. And, and you know, and that's how you kind of learn and that's how you move forward. And on top of that is the, uh, the community around the Arduino. And, and well, the Arduino and processing is that it's, it's extremely helpful. So these people are, you know, I, I will ask the most like asinine questions and people will be very nice about it and they'll tell you, you know, oh, it's just this, just do this little thing. And then you learn and you just kind of keep going and you move from there. It's not something that you need a, a degree, basically. I don't need a computer science degree to get something happening with these devices. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important to remember that, um, you know, you don't need formal training uh, in engineering or, or programming or, or software development to, to really start getting involved and to start making stuff. Um, and like you said, you know, most of this stuff is open source and there's large communities that uh, are very supportive and really sort of enabling um, newcomers to, to come in and learn and helping people get, get up to speed and get making stuff really quickly. Uh, and we'll, we can post all, uh, several links uh, to resources uh, in the show notes on the website as well. I, I think to speak a little bit uh, about the uh, culture that um, that Scott was referring to, I, I do think that this runs in parallel to the to the growth in in what we'll call uh, maker culture, the you know the handcrafted aspects of um, of trades that are uh, really seeing a resurgence, uh, I think in the United States right now. And part of that is, you know, as, as, and running alongside of that is, is this idea of, of hacking, uh, the technology that we have on hand. So, you know, we, we all have iPhones and we all, we all know at a certain point, we're going to upgrade those iPhones, but, um, in that cycle, we've got these incredible uh, computing platforms that we're no longer necessarily using on a day-to-day -day basis. Like you've got your previous iPhone sitting in a, uh, um, you know, sitting in a box somewhere, um, or I've got you know a stack of old laptops <laughs> that I don't know what to do with. So, in addition to the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi or the sensors that you might, um, uh, you know, pick up uh, to work with those. There's also reusing all the technology, all these great pieces of technology that we're no longer um, uh, using on a day-to-day -day basis. So 
I would think for getting started, it, it might be very well interesting to unpack uh, your, your, your old laptop or your old phone and see the parts that, uh, that make it up. Because honestly, if, if it's just going to go in, you know, into the rubbish heap anyway, it's worth uh, seeing if we can leverage some of these uh, pieces of technology that are, that are getting, uh, quote, left behind. So I think that's another way you can, you can look at the getting started question. Yeah, I think those are really good points from both of you, and I think they both sort of lead into the the final question, which is um, looking at uh, sort of this development from hacking and just sort of making these really crude prototypes, functional prototypes that um, offer up these new capabilities. moving from there to, say, polished designs in the sort of consumer electronics space or or even pushing some of this technology down into infrastructure. Um, there was a recent article in Make Magazine about the Siftio cubes um, and their sort of movement from prototyping uh, and making really crude models, uh, but so that they could communicate what was happening and play around with it and explore it to the actual final um, product. And, and I'm curious just to get your take as we sort of wrap things up today. Um, Maybe you have some some comments on that, but also what do you see as as products that are in this space um, that are going to be released in in the very near future? Right? I don't. We don't need to speculate about the sort of end game and the the big future of all of these products. But um, what are some things that that people should be aware of uh, and, and be looking out for uh, in the next couple of years? To the point of the Siftio cubes, that was actually an extremely interesting article because I was expecting them to say, oh, well, you know, these are these brilliant people that that came up with this awesome idea. They're two guys out of MIT. They just kind of wired it up and then they started manufacturing them. But that that's really not the case. And and what they really, the, the path that they actually followed was something that I, I think is everyone in the design community is really familiar with, with creating prototypes. So they had uh, they had their first prototype. And I think it was just maybe the you know the idea was to put an email on one and put an email on the other one, and you could physically sort them with these little cubes. And then it grew from there, and they they started uh, they made the prototypes. They're you know very crude prototypes. They started getting them in front of people, and the people started interacting with them, and they're like, oh well, I want to start playing with them. So then by the time it got to the third prototype, it was actually a pretty fun and involved uh, product, uh, albeit crudely engineered and programmed. That they that they were actually playing with. People were actually like using it and getting enjoyment from it. They eventually got, uh, gained a little buzz, and they they got. Like I think a ten million dollar investment up front for to starting their company, and then but when they actually built the 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 products for production, there was not one line of code from the programming of the of the of the uh, prototypes that went into that final product, and there was not one sketch of that engineering that went into the final product. So I mean, we're not building iPhones from scratch. What we're doing. We're building something that's usable that we can get in front of people, like we've been doing, and then uh, you know from there that you know that's when you bring in the teams of engineers after you get ten million dollars in funding. Yeah, I think iteration is is you know as you pointed out is key, and there's a huge difference between going from the prototype of one to the um, you know the test bed of ten to the first beta of a hundred and then finally into your your, your mini production of a thousand or to ten thousand there are you know uh, there's industrial and and uh, software design uh, techniques that that you know sort of need to grow with each of those um, 
uh, iterations uh, as as the the number of products you're creating um, gets larger. But um, remember, you're learning something with each of these cycles. So that first prototype cycle is really your ideation phase, but um, at the same time, you're 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 getting something uh, into the physical realm, which is so exciting. Um, so, so I think that's that's worth remembering when you're going from prototype to production that there are these these little leaps between um, uh, the quantities uh, that you're producing, where you're learning so much about um, uh, how to make the product great. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and I think it brings up a couple points and sort of trends in this space, right? We see, and we've been talking today about, you know, the threshold for engagement of creating these physical prototypes is a lot lower, right? It's easy for designers or really anyone to get in and start making something and having something tangible really quickly. Um, but at the same time, the way that people are using these products, um, it's no longer just a consumer electronics product, but the the durability of these things that we're making um, they're getting abused and worn every day and sort of always with us and persistent and pervasive in sort of their engagement with our bodies in motion. Um, so you see this as the the um, Jawbone Up, right, came out with their first product and they didn't really take into account um, as well as they needed to how the product was going to get used and abused. Um, so at the same time as we're seeing it's easier to get into this space, we also need to be looking to places like medical devices or uh, military equipment that has hardened um, specifications, right, of how do we make these things quick but also make them durable so that they can last the test of time and really as these sensors get embedded down into the infrastructure of our everyday lives that they're still sort of existing and persisting and not just um, dying off in you know a month or a year or even two years yeah i think that's that's a really good point um to to answer the second part of your question about things you know things people can look for um i think probably the the um item that I'm most excited to get my hands on and see the SDK for is uh, the Google Glass, right? So that's, you know, I want to get one of those for the studio as soon as we can. Um, there are a lot of other interesting um, products coming along too. I, I, you know, we're doing some some work with the Leap Motion uh, sensor uh, at the Boston studio, which uh, uh, essentially allows you to um, uh, program uh, gestural interactions to uh, uh, you know what, what, whatever web API you want to manipulate or you know uh, things on screen that you might have locally. Um, so those are two things. The um, uh, the Google Glass is obviously uh, probably more like six months out, and and the Leap Motion I believe was released a couple months ago. So yeah. so those are those are two things I'm excited about in the immediate, both the immediate future and right now. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for your um, thoughts and, and opinions today, guys. I think it's been a, a good discussion, so I appreciate you guys joining us. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Well, Eric, what can I say? The Internet of Things is, is one of my uh, favorite areas of technology right now, and it's extremely fun to talk about with with you and Scott, and I, I think we could probably go on for quite a long time, but uh, the show being, uh, you know, trying to keep it around, uh, you know, under the hour mark, we had to uh, 
uh, conclude our conversation, but I know that we'll be talking about this a lot, uh, both within the studios and, and between our studios as we develop this practice area. Yeah, you're right. Obviously, there's a lot of topics here, um, and there's a lot happening in this space. So I'd be curious to hear from any of our listeners um, in the comments on the, the blog what sort of things uh, they're doing with the Internet of Things. What are they exploring? What projects are they working on? Um, what questions do they have? Um, and people can go to the, the website and put their comments in. Um, try, like I said, I'd love to hear people's feedback. Um, in addition to that, uh, if people are interested, um, you know, we run a office hours both in um, Boston and in Columbus every Thursday from 4 to 6. Uh, so people have questions about Internet of Things um, or want to discuss any of that stuff, people can feel free to stop by either of our studios um, every Thursday from 4 to 6 and, uh, you know, grab our ear and we can work through some things, work through some things with you. Yeah, that's that's uh, always a good time to get together with people uh, during the open office hours. Uh, it's you know, time when, when we have an opportunity to give back to the, you know, larger uh, design and development community with either critiques or uh, suggestions or, you know, just uh, chatting about interesting topics. Uh, so if you're in Boston or Columbus, please stop by Thursdays, uh, four to six. Eric, I, I, I did want to raise one of the uh, I, I think one of the issues that comes with the product design for the Internet of Things that Dirk touched on, and, and I think you mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, towards the end of our discussion, which is, you know, the question of uh, durability and and testing and just the uh, the quality of these products uh, not being that of. Uh, consumer electronics anymore, but really needing to be infrastructure. And I thought you you put that in an eloquent way, and and I was interested in how you see that shaping up as the Internet of Things becomes more per- pervasive. Yeah, I, I think I think Dirk said it well, right? When he's talking about the idea of platforms, um, and it's what I call infrastructure, right? Um, so that it's it's really easy for us to make a lot of this stuff really quickly um, and to kind of express intent. Right and express our ideas um, and sort of explore concepts, um, and that's what a lot of the Arduino and a lot of this other um, platforms that we can hack on and build things really quickly. And like I said, express these ideas, and it makes that really easy. Um, but the sort of big picture, the other sort of end of, of how is all this stuff supported, whether it's the the support networks or the ecosystems, or if it's um, the the durability issues with the actual physical products. Um, I think a lot of this stuff just hasn't been figured out yet. And I think Dirk was touching on a lot of that when he was um, in his section. Um, and, and so I, I think that this is where we're sort of – and this is nothing new, right? This is sort of as technology develops. I mean, as we see this with all these sort of different iterations of um, technology movements, go through this kind of uh, period of exploration and all these people kind of shooting out in different directions and trying new things and making things accessible – um, and then we'll start to see, I think, some more standardization, um, more people pushing a lot of this technology down into infrastructure and, and supporting roles uh, that people then can build on top of. Um, so we're starting to see that now, but uh, but I think that's only going to happen more and more in the, the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. So uh, listeners, if you're in the Boston area and you're interested in uh, seeing some presentations and learning more about uh, Internet of Things, 
on May 21st at Bright Cove, Involution Studios and Pivotal Labs will be presenting a uh, mini conference in the evening um, on this very topic. Uh, once again, that's May 21st, and we'll have a series of talks um, and audience interaction uh, around the Internet of Things. Uh, so we're very much looking forward to that, and uh, uh, Scott and Eric will be uh, uh, there as well uh, to represent Involution, as will I. Um, additionally, I believe Scott, our guest today, will be speaking at two upcoming events. Eric, do you want to uh, talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so Scott's giving a talk um, April 25th through 27th at Codepalooza, which is a developer conference in Louisville, Kentucky, called the Physical Computing Product Development with Arduino. Uh, he's also giving that same talk um, at StirTrek in Columbus on May 17th. Unfortunately, the StirTrek uh, is sold out. Uh, I think it uh, supports like 1,200 developers and sold out in 10 minutes this year. Um, but I do believe there's still some tickets available uh, for Code Palooza, uh, people are interested in, in the area uh, to stop by. Uh, additionally, the creative director of Involution Boston, Johan Sonnen, will be speaking uh, at the uh, Microsoft New England Research and Development Center on uh, on Monday, March 25th. Um, he will be uh, talking about the quantified self and uh, his experiences around that. Uh, an ancillary topic for sure in the uh, Internet of Things. So, listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterwards if you're trying to remember something you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, this whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Eric? Yep, you can follow me on Twitter at E-A-D-A-H-L, um, and I'd love to hear from you. So that's it for episode 50 of The Digital Life. For Eric Dahl, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.